One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Multi-award winning actor Brian Cox is familiar to the theatre-going public all over the world. He also has a distinguished career in film and television, including roles in Rushmore, The Bourne Identity and Zodiac, as well as being the first actor to portray Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. He currently stars as media magnate Logan Roy in HBO's critically acclaimed series Succession, for which he won the Golden Globe Award and was nominated for the Emmy Award for Best Actor in a Drama Series. I was delighted to be able to catch up with him and talk about it earlier this year. So, hey, my guest today on the show is the wonderful Brian Cox, and uh, we'll be talking to him about his award-winning performance of Logan Roy in the hugely successful HBO season of Succession, which is just going into its third season at the moment. And um, Brian, welcome to the show. Well, hello, David. Nice to see you. And you too. So let's look, let's start with the beginning. Did you know... um, Jesse's work. Did you know Peep Show? And no, I I, I didn't. I, I except I did know uh, the thick of it, which I saw and really really liked. And I know Jesse wrote quite a few of those. Um, you know, so I I remember that and the whole kind of Amanda and Nietzsche thing. That's a sort of freshness which I think has been missing from British television for a long time. And suddenly he came along and. Well, they both came along and they they kind of renewed it and kind of brought something completely original and long in, long needed and I think fantastic. And Jesse has managed to keep it up uh, in the disguise of this American show, which is actually, in my view, fundamentally British because it has all the sort of hallmarks of British comedy, you know, and British and that kind of sharpness that. You get from great lighters from Lucy Preble and Tony Roach and Georgia Pritchard. You know, well, but also lucky. like very similar to that uh, thick of it, where you sort of you're laughing at it, but you're also sort of shocked and disgusted yeah. by it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know uh, Jesse's interesting. He 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 avidly doesn't like the theatre. He's very anti-theatre, which is interesting. I didn't know that until the other night. I spoke with at dinner with Frank Rich, who's our sort of exec producer and godfather of the show. You know, the famous Frank Rich, who was regarded as the butcher of Broadway, but he's, 
one of the sweetest men ever and, and so unlike a butcher it's hard to believe anyway he you know he was just saying that uh, Jesse uh, Jesse has a real deep suspicion of the theater and I found that really interesting that he had that but I can understand why because of the sort of you know he's really quite socialist in many ways I think Jesse and he's writing really is a you know it's a critique on it's always a critique on society and certainly when he wrote in the thick of it that was a critique on politics um, when it comes to the theater well the theater has changed a lot since my day when there was a whole kind of there's a whole intelligence behind new work which is not as present as it used to be I don't think I mean it's still there but it's not getting the focus that it deserves and um, you know, but also, everything you is, know, the, the the sort of the way the theatre was subsidised in the past. You know, play seven eighty four, those type of theatre companies were revolutionary. Companies. You know, and yeah. I don't know whether they're out there anymore today. Well, they are, but not to the level that I mean, they're there in embryo, but not to the level that it should be. But then we become, you know, it's it's sad to see what's happened in the UK because it's become such a a riven society, really, in a way that America is here. It's riven in a more drastic way, but it's still quite riven in the UK. And, you know, I mean, I'm a child of the 60s, you know, and there was nothing like it. It was the period of incredible social mobility when anything was possible. But it was also the period of the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Kinks and the great music and... Uh, which was so, well, you're from that part of the world, so you know all about that. But what was extraordinary about it, I watched the, um, I watched that fantastic documentary about the Beatles, which has just been on, you know. Get back. I was in tears. I was absolutely in tears because I thought, that's my time when anything was possible, when there was, and, and I've kind of, I've developed a sort of huge respect from seeing that for Paul McCartney, because I think Paul is absolutely the wizard. Clearly the wizard, clearly the driving force in a way. You know, John Lennon is, of course, John Lennon, and you can't get round to John Lennon, but he is mythical. He is a, but the worker bee of that group was definitely McCartney. 100%. I went to an inter I went to a talk he did at the South Bank, and one of the questions from the floor was, what are the misconceptions about you? And he said, the biggest misconception is I was the man who split up the Beatles. He said, but I think recently people have seen that I was the man that wanted to keep them together. More yeah, no, no, absolutely. And that's so clear. Yeah. He's a wee bit hard, I think, on poor George Harrison. He is. <laughs> you know, then when you see, there's another great documentary about him. Uh, and he's talking to somebody. My music knowledge is so ignorant. Somebody called Rick, somebody or other. It's an American thing. And it's him now. And he talks. He talks. This tells this wonderful story about about George Harrison, how they went to the same school, but he was a year younger. And uh, he said it was he was always he always got on the same bus, but of course they never sat together. And then this one day there was a space beside him, and Harrison came and sat together, and that was it. They they shared the same love of the guitar, the same love of music, the same love. And he, but I, but then I always, but then I thought. Well, of course, George was always the kid brother. He was always the kid, our kid, in many ways. You know, and I think that Paul probably had that slight attitude to him as our kid. Though I think he that's is, why George has to get up and leave, because he has oh, absolutely. to find himself. In absolutely, and it was quite right. It was quite right. And, of course, his music is astonishing as well. You know, 
you know, Harrison's work is incredible. And uh, anyway, it, 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 so that's my period. You know, that's... Uh, but like that, all those periods... Rick Rubin, start. that's the guy. The guy's called Rick Rubin. That that's was right. the that's That's the... Um, yeah. But like all those periods and all those revolutions, it started a little bit before that, didn't it? It started with, with a place that you worked in, which was the Royal Court. It started with that angry young man. Yeah, yeah. it started in 56. It started, started with, with Osborne and stuff sure. like that. And that yeah. paved the way for people with, certainly people with accent and what, yeah. and sort of Finney. Finney, Finney was a big uh, actor for you as far as love. Oh, Finney was... When I saw Finney, I was 14. Oh, shit, I'm trying to shove this off, sorry. I'm trying to, oh, God. Phones, I, I can never get the measure of them. Oh, here we are. That's I, thought, I, I thought you were by a railway station for a second. No, 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 that's, that's, that's my phone. <laughs> I can't stand that. Anyway, no, Finney, Albert, I was 14, and I went to the Plaza Cinema in Dundee, and I wanted to be an actor from the age of about, Two, really, when, I've, when my dad used to put me on my coal bunker at New Year and I would do Jolson impersonations, you know, uh, when I was you know, <laughs> this high. And uh, I saw Albert on Saturday night and Sunday morning because I thought I wanted to be an actor, but all my response was to American films. I really, the, you know, Doctor in the House and Dirt Bogart, though they're wonderful actors, Kenneth Moore, it never really meant anything to me, but Jimmy Cagney, you know, Comfrey Bogart, Eventually, Marlon Brando, James Dean, that all meant so and much. Spen and me. Spencer Tracy was a And Spencer Tracy, the great, I mean, he was my hero. He's my total hero. And uh, so when I saw Albert, I thought, oh, my God, it's possible. There's a guy, you know, you know, we sometimes, actually, sometimes when I was younger, we used to get confused uh, for one another. And uh, I just thought, wow, and then it's possible. Then I could do it. Then I could go and do what I, I could pursue what I want to pursue. And yeah. I'm, oh, I've always been grateful to Albert for that. And he was, he was such a standard bearer. He really was. In this but bef before you saw Albert and you were watching, you know, Spencer Tracy and you were going to the cinema, you know, we always sort of have this thing that we, we want to see people like us up on the screen. You know, we want to have identity. Your identity was with American actors. So where did this thing of, Acting because you know you're a working class boy. You're from a place where you know people weren't becoming actors left, right, and centre. What drew you to the uh, Dundee rep in the first? Well, it's it's really to my background. You know, I mean, I my dad died when I was eight. My mum had a series of well, she had a major nervous breakdown, and she was partly she had to be had to go. She had electric shock treatment, and uh, she was away for about two years of my childhood. And then I it was difficult to when she came back. So I, I was of no fixed abode. So I had to, I had to make my own decisions. I had to look after myself because it was not, I mean, my kid, my, I had these older sisters who were wonderful to me, but they were married and they had kids and they had their own. And then I had one sister, my youngest of the eldest sisters. I've got three older sisters. The youngest one was on her way to Canada when my father uh, died. And my two other sisters enabled her to go to Canada. So I was left, and my brother ran away to the army. So I was left virtually on my own, except for my elder sister, who kind of looked out for me as much as looked after me. So I had to make a lot of decisions when far too young, you know, when I, uh, I mean, it's, it's why I wasn't, I, I was never a particular, because my father was a kind of mythical father. He was a wonderful man. He was, I mean, I still remember him so strongly. But 
I had to really make decisions of my own, which drove me to sing, you know, and I spent all my time at the pictures, as we call it in Scotland. You know, we, I was at the pictures constantly. I used to go there practically every day. I mean, I would, I would con my aunties of a, you know, of a one in six to go to, a, and of course it was double features. Uh-huh. And in my hometown, we had 21 cinemas, you know, <laughs> 21 of them. And they were, and the Broadway and the Royal were kitty corner to each other. And the Royal was on one side of, and the Broadway was on the other. And of course you could see as many as eight movies in a week because it was all double features. So it was, that was my background. That was what I was brought up in. That's, and that's where my, passion it's still my passion my passion is still this very much to do with the cinema you know because you know there's a thing here called turner classic movies which i've just asked to be a guest host on and that means more to me than any award could ever mean is the fact that they made they've asked me to be guest host on tcm that is wonderful i'm thrilled about it so that's that's my that's where my good beginnings lie, David. They, they lie in that, the fact that I saw that stuff and it just ate into my soul and it just said, this is what you are going to do. And, uh, and of course, I was very iconoclastic when I was a kid. I was kind of a bit out of the ordinary from other kids. And, uh, and then a theatrical life seemed totally natural. When I walked into Dundee Rep and I was 15 and I went along for a job that I'd came through a series of circumstances with my um, a teacher. A couple of te- I had these, you always need great men or great women in your life when you're young. These teachers who are, you know, I have such respect for the teaching profession because even though the, the two guys who were responsible for me, Bill Dewar and, and George Hackett, George was my registrar. He never actually, he was my registrar teacher. And George, Bill Dewar never actually taught me. But there were two men that were, that actually, again, looked out for me. They were concerned because they could see that I was very much a fish out of water. I was, I mean, when, you know, you, when I went to woodwork classes and you made those boats, you know, my boat was, up, I mean, it was, you know, it was like a, well, it was undescri- indescribable what I would make. So that was my, that was where I was going, you know. And, well, when, you, uh, when you got to Dundee Rep, did you really feel like you'd found your tribe? Oh, yeah, as soon as I walked in the door. Because when I walked in the door of Dundee Rep, and this is absolutely true, there was a fight going on. Yeah. And, I was, and I was trying to get up the stairs. I went to the front of the, off, I went to the front office, and the woman at the, she's at this wacky Dundonian conversation with the woman at the front. She said, what are you here for, son? I said, I'm here for an interview. She said, oh, I, oh, I, you've got to, you, 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 you've come at the front. You can't get to the front from here. You've got to go to the back to get to the front. So go at the back. There's a door at the back. It's a stage door. If you go in there, then you can come at the front. But you can't get to the front from the front. You can only get to the front from the back. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you. So I went round to the back uh, to get to the front. And I came in the back and it was a, it was a close, you know, it was, a, it was an old close. And it was the old Dundee rep. It was the one that was the original one on Nickel Street, which burnt down on my 17th birthday, by the way, which was great, one of the tragedies. Anyway, so I walk in and there's these two guys having a go at one another. And they're screaming at one another, they're shouting at one another, they're, they're, they're doing fake fisticuffs and all that, you know. And one of them was Nicole Williamson. And, and I thought, oh, wow. So I walked up the stairs. I, I couldn't, I tried to get past them as they're arguing. And I got up. And standing on the landing was Gone Granger, the actor oh, Gone yeah. Granger, smoking a cigarette. And he looked at me and he said, are you all right, darling? <laughs> and I thought, 
this is where I've got to be. You know, all hell's going on down there and somebody calls you darling. I thought, I'm at home. <laughs> I remember seeing Nicole Williamson. He did a one-man show. I was lucky enough to see him. He did a one-man show about uh, John Barrymore, I think, and he was just amazing on stage. Oh, yeah. He was. I was very lucky to watch Nicole regularly in rep do part. I mean, his Jack Manningham and Ghosts was one of the scariest things I've ever seen, you know. I mean, he... Because he, you did, you went, but you attracted to the cinema. You just said that, but... Yeah, I was, but you then You are I, a theatre actor. That was, that's right. I mean, I was attracted to the cinema, but then, you know, the cinema... Well, what was so amazing was that period, of course, was the period of the free cinema when I, in the 60s when we had, you know... Saturday night and Sunday morning, look back, uh, look, well, there was the look back and anger version that Tony Richardson did with Richard Burton. There was a kind of loving with Alan Bates. There was loneliness of a long distance running with Tom Courtney. There was Billy Lyre this, with Tom Courtney. The sporting Courtney. life as well. The, as well, the sporting life is like my favorite of all because of Lindsay again, because Lindsay was like, a, Lindsay Anderson was a great mentor to me. So that was my thing. But then, the theatre was like, I'd never even thought about the theatre. And it was Bill Dewar who actually took me to the theatre for the first time. And I actually only went to the theatre literally three months before I eventually worked there, you know. Wow. But when you came to London and you were in the scene, I mean, you got into the, I know you went to the Birmingham Rep and you did a lot of, when you were at the court and stuff, did you feel at the centre of that movement or did you well, feel a, a bit on the outside of it? Or no, not at all. You were, you were very greedy. I mean, I always felt... I always felt sorry for the posh actors because they were not greeted as well, you know. As as I mean, it's a diff it's a whole different ball game now. But in those <laughs> days, you know, they were treated with a little bit of, you know. Uh, I mean, I always think that was so funny at the Royal Court because all the English people, all the posh English people, was played by a South African called Nigel Hawthorne. All right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I always funny. thought it was one of the deep ironies. <laughs> so well, you know, it was it was so bizarre because. You know, the, the court was just, it was just there. And Lindsay was, that's why Lindsay's so important to me because he, I mean, I auditioned for the court about five times before I ever got in. You know, I auditioned for Jane Howell. Uh, was Gaskell there then? Gaskell, I auditioned for Gaskell. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Peter and what Gill. Was, so what was different about Lindsay then? What was, what did he draw out of you as an well, actor that was different? He, Lindsay was very, you know, he was, he was a complicated man. He was, you know, he was, reputedly homosexual, though he never practiced. But he was very caring. He was very concerned about one's soul, actually, in a way that was rather interesting. He was very, very open and very... And, of course, he was very well brought up. He was very well educated. And then also he was a Scot. So he felt very, very much a Celt in his bones. And he was a... He was on Anderson, which of course, but also he was a bell. He was related to the Bell's Whiskey, oh, which right. of course was what, that was what kept Lindsay going because he had a wee stipend from Bell's Whiskey through his mum. But he was a revolutionary as well. I mean, things well, like if, you know, I mean, movies if, like if, this lucky man, if, you know, they were really... Oh, lucky man. I think, oh, lucky man, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying, he was an American, he was saying, that's one of the great films of my life was, oh, lucky man. And, uh, you know, and, and Oh Lucky Man was astonishing. I actually even watched Britannia Hospital recently, which yeah. at the time I didn't like very much. But looking back at it now, it's 
it's an extraordinary piece of satirical history. Yeah, he really does and, look into a future that we're now living in. Slightly. Well, that's right. And that's what Lindsay was. He was a visionary, yeah. you know, uh, and he was concerned with not, not in any kind of sort of full way. He was a genuine visionary, you know. He had a, he had a vision of things. In a way that Gaskell was a great teacher, great teacher Gaskell. He was, he was much more locked off, Bill, very Yorkshire, very kind of, you know, in a way. Peter Gill was a kind of, again, was also part of that, but he was the young guy. In fact, Peter Gill was at Dundee just before I was as an actor, and he was an actor for quite a while, Peter, before he became a director. And then Peter just developed into a, a wonderful, also a wonderful teacher and director, great man with lines. And a, lines. And a writer, a great writer. And a writer, yeah, and yeah. a great writer. And, and Lindsay was just, he was like this paterfamilias, you know, he really took care of you, and he really looked out for you, and, and his direction was impeccable, you know. It was you like your, sorry, you say in your book, though, which um, is a, just fantastic, your, your book, which is uh, putting, putting the rabbit in the hat, which I think is a great quote, which I think is from Oliver Cotton, isn't it? It's Oliver Cotton, yeah. But you say at one point, you talk about Judy Dench, and you say about watching Judy on stage is like somebody who's, uh, it's a spiritual experience sometimes yeah. between her and the audience, but not her, the performer, her, the character, the character she's playing. And that, with, with the, those early days at the court and in Birmingham, were they the things where you were forming that type of uh, Absolutely. I mean, also I was, very, yourself? I was very lucky to have been a student at the time of the, the opening of the National Theatre. So in a way, I saw the grandiose elements of it as well, but also the, the kind of finite of the boulevard comedy. Have you saw... I mean, Coward directing Hay Fever, for example, with Maggie, the extraordinary Maggie Smith, I mean, and, and Bob Stevens and Bob Lang and, uh, and of course, um, uh, Damien Edith Evans, who was amazing. And, but very, but again, part of that boulevard theatre, which was so natural and so free. And they were wonderful. That was wonderful. And then to see Bill's, still, I think Bill Gaskell's greatest work was the recruiting officer that he did with, and, and with the wonderful, Olivier was in it, and Bob Stevens was in it, and Maggie Smith, who was sensational on it. So that, you, 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 you saw the standard of work, and there was a sort of goal that was presented to you as an actor. You said, I've got to go there. I'm not going there, I'm going there. That's where you got to go, because these guys do it. But I have to do it as me, I can't do it as somebody else. I've got to do it as me, and I've got to find my route to that, you know. But like any revolution, you have to slightly trash the people that have come before you in order to move forward and find your yeah. own voice. So there was a sense, like you said before, about you felt sorry for any of the posh actors. There was a sense that nobody ever was going to do Rattigan again or nobody was going to do, you know, Coward or whatever right. that was. But later on in your career, though, you know, you did, you have to explore that part of the theatrical life as well, don't you? They're, those plays and writers have, have just as much validity as, as, oh, as I, anybody I, else. David, you're absolutely right. One of the things that gets me, I'm reading a book at the moment. A friend of mine has written a book about, um, it's about the, the making of Arsenic and Old Lace, the film of Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm -hmm. and, it's a, and he is a brilliant scholar. He's called Charles Dennis. He's Canadian. And his sense of history is total. And I believe this is what we are losing so much at the moment with the cancel culture and the woke culture. We're losing history. We're losing how we arrived. I mean, I just read this thing about Dickens 
where somebody is saying, well, Dickens is questionable. Uh, and what was the one? Uh, not Dickens. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, also Jane Eyre, uh, you know, was, was questionable. And you go, you know, you go, well, that was the period. That was the time. That's, that's where we come from. And you cannot cut it off. You cannot pretend that didn't happen. It did happen. And that's the basis of where we arrived at now. So your history is so important to you and the knowledge of your history. And it's something which is sadly lacking these days, really. And it's not given the respect and the sense of continuity that it deserves. 100%. I mean, I really feel that. And, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we have to be, our emotions are our emotions and we have to get into them. And they're sometimes very complicated. And that's what, I mean, I think the thing about theatre, I mean, this takes me on actually, because I was, I was lucky enough to see you both as Leah and Titus. In Titus, you know, P, that's one of that's a Tarantino-like play, isn't it? I mean, there's there's a there's, there was people fainting in the audience and oh, sort yeah. of throwing up when you didn't you have to it's help really, someone out at one point? Yeah, I had to I had to I had to assist a woman out who was she was in the she was in the side seats and she was going, help me, help me, help me. And I was trying to do this. So I took her and I continued talking and I walked her into the vomitorium and just oh. <laughs> deposited her there. I mean, that but was a no, fantastic I mean, it, performance. Well, the, the matinee of that, the first matinee of that, which was at the Swan Theatre, that's where we started in Stratford, they carried out seven people. <laughs> Did you consider it a failure if nobody fainted? Then? You know, well, I didn't even, but I never thought that anybody was going to faint. I mean, I was just doing my job. Oh. And, we, and also because of the genius of Deborah Warner and Deborah, who was hungry and, and wanted, you know, I mean, I remember one of the actors who was an RSC actor, she couldn't understand what Deborah was doing. She got it eventually, but it was, she, she was very discombobulated by it by her because she was so original Deborah. she was so she just didn't put up with anything she just said we think in you we think in you and uh and i and for me it it it, it, it was a going back to again my roots which i had never recognized as much and i realized that when i when i started in scotland working with people like fulton Mackay and the great duncan mccray you know mm. um, who's now again forgotten but a genius genius comic actor and that meant that physical thing that i had which i which kind of behavior made me subdued training made me subdued acting you know, don't don't be so decorous as an actor. Don't show off in a bit. Don't show off. But what I could do brilliantly was I could put all that into Titus. The whole vaudeville experience I could put into Titus. Just even the idea of him, you know, I had I had this idea that he would be serving them tea. You know, so I had this fake uh, trolley that I came on and I was dishing tea to them as I was, you know. But also you were covered in, you were covered in clay. It was like I was covered in clay as well. It was like you were like this statue that was moving and it was just yeah. so wonderful. And is it true that Deborah had to sort of slightly encourage you to get into that vaudevillian part of your Yeah, story? she had to put she probably she pushed me into it. Mm -hmm. I mean I was I was ready to go. I mean it started years earlier when this when I had this extraordinary incident when I was playing the Scotsman in India, and um, there was this young lass, she was a Katak dancer, and she could see in me something that was what, what, was a little frustrated, which I didn't even know myself. And she said, she said to me, she said, you know, can I say, Mr. Cox, that I, 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 I love what you do? And she said, but I, I know that you want to move more. And I said, yeah? She said, yes. 
I could feel it. You want to move and you should move. You should feel, you should feel free. And eventually this young woman, you know, and the dagger speaks had me crawling all over the stage because I would come off and I would say, is that, no, no, go further, go further. (laughs) She was 16. But that was, and that was the beginning for me. And it was, you know, that was in 1981. So, and it was six years later that I finally brought it to play. We'll be back with more chat after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But also that humor in, in Titus that you, yeah. you know, he, yeah. he kills her sons and he puts them in a pie and gets her to eat them. I mean, this it's obviously grotesque, but also there's you're laughing at this yeah. horrible thing because it's so brazen. Well, there, that's right. But that's is, there, right. is there a part, just to bring it back a little bit, you know, I can really see in Logan Roy bits of Leah. Is there bits of Titus in him as well? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there are bits of Titus. There is the audacity. I mean, you know, the audaciousness that, that I mean, even Leah isn't audacious. Leah is just a king with a lot of problems, you know. But, 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 but uh, Titus has lost it all. He's lost it all. He's been this great soldier. He's had 40 children. All of them have gone. He's sacrificed all of them. And he's got four kids left. And, he, and it's, his life is ludicrous. And it's that ludicrousness that releases you into something else. And he's and brilliantly embrace, cruel. He's brilliantly cruel. Oh, yeah. yeah. In a way that Logan can be brilliantly cruel, too. Yeah. And that's what I love. About it. The, the one thing, the, in the Lear analogy, the one thing in Logan Roy is there's no Cordelia, really, is there? There's no, there's no purity in that, that family. No, I mean, and um, actually... You know, and in many ways, that's kind of what Logan's looking for. That's part of Logan's secret, in a way that he just he wants his people to, you know, as he's done all his life and and bitterly and ended up, you know, in an extreme situation. Mm-hmm. He's sort of he's looking for someone to stand up to him properly, and they never do. They expect too much, and they just they, they want they want it, they want it all, you know, without actually earning it. 
My it's favorite all- line in the last episode is make your own fucking pile. I you know, <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. you know what you- he said? You know, because they're just going on and on and on. Well, fucking do it yourselves then. That's what I did. Because he is in that, he's in a real bind of having given his children everything, created them really, and wanting them to stand up for themselves. But actually, he's sort of ruined them himself. Well, he's destroyed them. He's yeah. destroyed them. By and giving them everything. By giving them too much, he's yeah. destroyed them. You said um, you've always, you've talked about with different characters about your in, you said when you played uh, Lyndon Johnson, your in was slightly that he reminded you of your dad. And you talked about the, the murder of Peter Morville in uh, when you did Le- Lecter and St- Hannibal Lecter. But what was your in for, for Logan? What was the bit where you thought? Well, oh. Logan, I, I, my in for Logan was really, you know, it, it, it was, you know, it's time and tide, David. You know, the, you, 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 knock, you knock your pan on, as my mother would say, for years. You know, you, you work your ass off. And, you you know, you go into different... I mean, I when I made the move to America all those years ago in the late 90s, it's because I'd exhausted everything that I could do in the UK. And I just, and I just wasn't happy. And, and television, which I was always delighted... I had the best time in television... But at that time in the 90s, television was not good in the UK. It was really in a bad way. And I thought, the old pragmatist I am, I thought, well, if I'm going to do crap, I'd rather do crap in America and get paid more than do crap in England and get paid that. <laughs> so I thought, what the hell with that? So I took the move. And also, I'd never, I never, because, you know, with the best will in the world, we've created some of the greatest films you know, imaginable, you know, David Lean, you know, uh, Lindsay, I mean, that, that whole new way. But we've never had a film industry. We've had a television industry. We, we've never had a proper film industry. There's a bit of it, but it's not on the level that is here. And how, I mean, if you look at the history, you can see why there's such a film industry in this country. So I decided to make that move. And uh, in making that move, I had to learn to bob and weave, you know, just do. But also in the back burner of my life, was the fact that I knew that I, I knew I was going somewhere, you know what I mean? But I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know when I was going there. And I just felt, I've just got to play this through and see what happens. And finally, at the age of, now I was 70, an idea comes and you go, yes, this is the one. This is the one. Because there's no nonsense about him. He's, you know, and you have to be as unsympathetic as you can be, yeah. you know, because you don't play for sympathy, and he does certainly doesn't. Well, so there's, I just, there's a different thing, isn't there? There's sympathy and there's empathy. There's a that's what right. I, what I think you really do brilliantly with Logan is you don't comment on him. No, you know, you 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 really you feel for him. You you understand him. You know, you've said that one of the things you share with him is a disappointment in humanity. (laughs) You've got to do that. You know, one of the terrible things for me as an audience member is when I see actors commenting on their character. That's right. And we get a lot of that. They stand to the side of it and go, you know, he might do that, but I don't do that. You don't do that. You celebrate your character. Well, I I just think that's rule number one. I don't think you, you you know, you don't judge. You should never judge your characters. And also you should never stand beside your characters. You've You've got to commit. It's commitment, you know, and it is commitment to. But it's also the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's the human experience, you know. You know, my, my great thing is, and I always said this when I was teaching to students, always have a photograph of yourself as a child. 
always have a photograph of yourself as who you were when you were a wee boy or a wee girl, because actually that's who you are. And you've grown up, you've done all that, but that hasn't changed. That David, uh, I've just been watching, um, he's become my new hero, David Byrne. Oh, yeah. And I've been watching America Utopia. I don't know if you, well, you haven't yeah, got it. So yeah. it's, it, believe you me, it is worth the trip to, to New York to see it because it's genius. And he discusses all of that. He discusses that whole thing about life, destiny, where you are, what you do. And he does it in this incredible, entertaining, mu and the music is astonishing. And you go, this is a great artist. This is, and this is a man who's plowed his furrow to the point where he wanted to be, this is what I want, this is the furrow I wanted to plow, you know, talking heads, and which was always great. But he's come to that, and he's now he was hitting 70, and it was the same with me. As soon as that script came through the door, I, when I didn't come through the door, as soon as it, well, it did, yeah, no, it, was, it came through this thing. <laughs> as soon as I read the treatment of it, I just thought, yes, this is right, this is good. And as soon as I knew who, who was behind it, Jesse, I just thought, it can't go wrong. And Adam McKay. So I had this conversation because originally the idea was that he was, well, I'm not sure if it was the original idea. It was told me it was a one season part. Yeah. That's what it was told to me by my, my, my manager. I said, it's a one season role. And I thought, well, that's, I'm fine with that. And then within the conversation of uh, Jesse and Adam, literally within the conversation, it changed. Because I said, so you only want me for one season. And there was this pause on, you know, Adam was in L.A. and Jesse was in Italy and there was this pause between the two of them. And finally, no, 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 I think it's going to be more than one season. But, but do you get involved in the arc? I mean, when they talk to you, I mean, because there's a pilot, isn't there, which you do, then you have to wait for pickup, which I'm sure happened very quickly with something like Succession. But are you involved talking to them about the arc through each season or over? No, I, I, I don't do that. I, I, that's their premise. I let the writers be the writers. But it's how I interpret it is a different thing. <laughs> but how long do you have to interpret it? When does the well? I have I have the time that I've got the script in my hand to to prepare it. You know, right. and I is that days though. I mean, you know, in a theatre well, you'll have four or five weeks to rehearse. Yeah. Or... Well, in, in well, you know, I mean, you've yeah. an experienced actor. You know what it's no, like, and no. you know what you have to do. You have to come and do it and do it there and then. There's a sense of immediacy, but also with with Logan, it's the level of commitment. You know, you don't, and also, I'm not, I don't want to really interfere with the writer's process at all. Sure. I want the writers to do what they do, and hopefully what I do will also inform their writing. Mm -hmm. Rather than me saying, I want, you know, I know there are some actors, and certainly there are actors in our show, there's one actor in our show who does that, who talks to the writers and talks about this and that and next thing. I don't do that. I would rather keep it mysterious and i'd rather keep it that it's it's i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to get my place wrong within the community yeah you know i'm i know i'm number one on the call sheet that's fine but i don't want to get my place wrong in the fact that you know without the writing you can't do anything but you do you think that's a very uniquely British thing? Do you think uh, British actors tend to think of themselves more in a production in that way? I think we do. I think we're very well trained that way. It's part of our training, and it's it's the thing I value. You know, it's the thing I'm proudest of about being a British actor mm -hmm. is the fact that, yeah, my training is all. And I find a lot of the American training is not all, you know, because there's so much. I mean, it's this, this whole thing of the emotional memory that, 
this whole big thing that happened in the 30s when, you know, it was Stella Adler, you know, you know, there was, Stanislavski was the great influence on the group theatre, for example. And uh, in Stanislavski's earlier uh, being a character things, he talks about emotional memory. And the Strasbourg and the kind of people picked up on that. So it was all about emotional memory, about the memory that you have and what have you. Uh, and Stella Adler went to Paris and took herself off and she knew that Stanislavski was in Paris and she literally tracked him down and she asked him a few questions. And she said, he, he said, she said to him, so tell me about emotional memory, uh, Maestro. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I let that go years ago. And she said, why? He said, because it interferes with the imagination. Because it, it really stops the imagination in a way and it means that you're, you're going down a very narrow path in terms of your emotion. So she goes back to New York and with the great revelation and to say, and she says to Strasbourg, well, you know, uh, Lee, um, uh, you know, Stanislavski doesn't believe in the emotional memory anymore. And Lee looked at her and he said, then he's wrong. <laughs> and that is the measure of how all of those actors that do the whole, who do the whole kit and have their teeth removed and do everything, you know, lose tons and tons. I mean, it's great. I mean, if you see uh, Bobby De Niro and, and Raging Bull, it's a fantastic performance and it's a fantastic commitment. But even Bobby De Niro now is very gentle, very sweet, very nice, and all of that. After a time, you you know, you go, well, it doesn't really, it's not, it's not really valid. But I think I got, I mean, as a younger actor, I felt that that emotional memory was very important. So what I had to do is go and find those experiences. And of course, a lot of those experiences were very dark and not very nice experiences right. because I felt I had to find this weird thing called authenticity and I had to go and live it and I had to be out there. And, and I really, you know, I was, on the edge for a while about putting myself out there in order to get all this sort of experience. But, and I did. And then I thought, well, I don't need to do that now. I, exactly. I, I, I have that. It's okay. I've done it. And uh, exactly. Even, I mean, even it, then it, I didn't take it to work with me. I don't think. No, I just it's, had it. it's an understandable rite of passage. It really is. And even I did it. I've, I've done it too, you know, on my, you know, my, my anger, you know, cause I have a lot of, because of my background, there's a, there's a lot of subdued anger. So that became a great motivating force for me. You know, when I was, when I first did, we had a thing called Student's Own and Drama School. And I remember I did a bit of, I think it was Night Must Fall. And I was very raging, you know, and the, the woman who was this extraordinary eccentric woman called Frida Hodgson, who took the class, she said, you're obviously quite angry. I said, Really? She said, oh, yes, I think you're quite angry. Maybe just a little bit too angry. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being on a film set and one, guy, one actor who remained nameless was sort of being very aggressive offset. You know, he was staying in character offset. And he, he said to this other actor, yeah, that, that's what my character does. My character does that. And this guy said, yeah, well, my character is going to punch you in the face in a minute. And it was like, <laughs> that was it. And the, But it, it was the volatility around it. But I, I mean, I think... We do, because time on a film set, particularly on a television set, you've got to, time is of the essence, isn't it? And you yeah. need to be arriving on set with, you know, you've learned your lines, obviously, but with some sort of attitude 
in a way, you don't have time to discover it right there on the set. You sort of bring it with you, really. You have to. But but also, if you've got the machine that we've got, you know, with such wonderful actors like you know, Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin and, and McFadgen, who I think is just acting up a bloody storm in the show, you know, is, is incredible. And he comes from that discipline as well. And that's very, that, I mean, I look at our Matthew and I go, yeah, well, yeah, we've, we're of the same ilk. And, and, and that community, when you've got that community, it, 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 that's what you work from. You work from the community that you've created, that sort of awkwardness that starts it all off and the pilot. And pilots are always a little like that because everybody's trying to feel their way. That's understandable. But when you get into the groove of it, it plays, if you trust it, it'll play itself. It'll do itself because you've created something. And so, therefore, you can take anything on board, mm-hmm. anything that's thrown at you. Uh, and also, the great thing about contradiction, uh, which a lot of people find difficult, I, I, the great Peter Wood once said, con, you know, which was a great note, that contradiction is character. Yeah. As soon as you contradict, you create character. Yeah. You know, that's what, you know, so that you are a mass of contradictions to start with. As we and, all are. Uh, we all are, you know, and we're, and, and, and we're complicated. That's why I find Logan very re- very rewarding as a role because he is so mysterious and he's such a kind of, there's a secret there, which I haven't really, I mean, I know there's a secret and I kind of, kind of protect the secret in the playing of the role. And that's... I- I think that's what I would like to talk to you about, about though, just that sort of how one protects yourself and protects your character. You know, there is a sense that it's all, sometimes it's all going crazy and you've got to, you yourself or me or whatever as the actor, has to sort of be really, make sure you protect your energy, you protect your character, you protect your your through line. And that can mean that there's sometimes this confrontation with directors or other actors or something, and you have to negotiate that. But it's important that you 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 can improvise or you can you can go like you did with the, the Scottish play or with Titus. You can be bold and go places, but you also have to be true to yourself in, in, in the side of it. It's just about how you protect yourself in the middle of this maelstrom that's going on. Well, I, I think that you, you you mustn't be afraid of your vulnerabilities for a start. You actually have to be open, and it's the openness that keeps it that way. So that that you you know we we've also one of our skills, and and it's a very important element, is the ability to be turn to turn on a dime, to be able to go and come back very very quickly, uh, and not sort of dwell not dwell in a in a problem, but see a problem in a way like. Um, Claude Rains had this wonderful description of, he used to talk about his lines, and he would say, and he was a teacher, he actually taught Gilgood, Claude Rains, uh, and he played the original Richard Durden, I think, in Devil's Disciple, for sure. And Claude Rains would say, it's like beads on an abacus. You, there's an abacus, and there are these beads, and you want to go to the seventh and the eighth, well, you want to go to the fifth, seventh, and Tenth beat. So you're going to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And that varies. Those beads on the abacus varies, but there's the structure. So in a way, within yourself, dealing with your own stuff, you have to also do the same thing. You've got to harness that material 
and that confusion which is in you. And it's the confusion that allows you to, in, to get into something. And, and also, feel, if you feel overwhelmed, that's okay. That's part of the process. I hate that word process, but it's part of it. You know. That brings me on to another thing, which was uh, you said once that you had a fear of the monologue. And then when you did Rat in the Skull, you had a monologue that was, you know, uh, 35 minutes long. And then you did St. Nicholas, which was just a one-man play. Yeah. I mean, how did you get over that fear of the monologue? Because I think Max said something very interesting to you one night about you were just, you were sort of signaling to the audience. You were enjoying oh, yeah. yourself too much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was doing, my, I was doing a shtick. Your shtick. Tell me about the shtick. About, about well, the, shtick is, the shtick is what, you know, it, it's that thing, you know, it, and it happened at a dress rehearsal. You know, playing Nelson and, and Rat in the Skull was very nerve-wracking because it was a nerve-wracking subject. And to play, I'm a Catholic, so to play a real hard prodigy. It was all set in the, the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It's all set in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And I was playing a Protestant. So I was having to understand the, the Protestant ethic. But he was also a Protestant who was put in a, had a great deal of horrific conscience about what was going on. He'd, find, you know, he'd reached a, a point where it was all, you know, which was the story of the writer, uh, Ron Hutchinson. He'd, mm-hmm. you know, he used to listen. He was a Protestant boy, a bit like Ken Branagh, whose family moved to Coventry. And and he would listen to the radio to hear about who had been killed, you know, what Catholic had been done in, you know, and, and, he, and he said he became obsessed about it. He became obsessed about the troubles in a way that was not, he felt, altogether healthy. So Rat in the Skull was his process of writing that out. So for me, the thing was, and why I went into a shtick, is it was... Um, Protection. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, I don't know if I can do this. I really am not sure if I can pull this off. But I know I can. I can. You know, I can do what you were talking about earlier on. I can stand outside and cover. I, and that's what I did. I just fell into I, out of sheer panic. I did this before, and Max was to, Max was totally right because I just panicked. I'd got to a point where we were coming up to the the previews, and I thought. Am I any good? Is this working? Does this make any sense? I mean, you've always got to trust your director on that. But, you know, have you worked with Max? No, I've, I've, um, you've seen many of his well, he's, he's good, but he's, he, he, and he was tough, quite rightly so. But he, you know, so that, that, that in a way you're feeling, oh, I don't know. All right, I'll know what I'll do. I'll do this. Yeah. And you do that. You do what you're accomplished in. And, of course, anybody who's sharp, as Max certainly was, is saying, you know, that's bullshit. That's not, you're not, it's not the genuine article. Because you're frightened of the emotion. You're scared. You're yeah. scared shitless. Yeah. You're in a state of panic. Yeah. Totally and in the, th- in the theatre, doing a performance like that every night, again, how do you, and, you know, you, you're such a physical actor when I've seen, you know, Leah, Titus, all those things. Again, how do you protect yourself through the through the run? I mean, do you have any sort of routine? Do you what? what no, no, I just, I just, I just think that the the familiarity breeds the contempt from the problem. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the more familiar you are, the the and the more possibility of 
little avenues opening up within the work that you went, oh, I didn't know I could go that way. Oh, I didn't know I could go that way. But never losing this central thread, you know, and that's what I love about it. That's why, to me, it's never boring. I've always found that when I've done, you know, I mean, not with all plays, but certainly with Shakespeare, that you're constantly finding something new in it that you think, God, he's, that's where you find his genius as you're performing it because it's suddenly you'll read something in the paper in the morning, go to work that night, and it will be in the in the performance and in the language right. and in, in his in his thought process. It's just so giving all the time. Yeah, that's that's absolutely. I couldn't have expressed it better. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely what you. That's what you gain from it, you know. And 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 a Shakespeare, you know, that's where we are so lucky. We're so lucky in that and part being part of that, having that classical tradition at our beck and call, because it's so informative. And the older you get and the more you read Shakespeare, the more allegorical he becomes, the more you see that this is a man who's working under very strict, you know, strict society rules, but he's he's always bending them rather brilliantly and rather... It was Deborah Warner who took... Because I I did the play that Deborah did at the RSC after Titus, which was King John. And oh, I and I was you know, bricking it. I'd never done any Shakespeare. I didn't do a Shakespeare at school. I didn't, I, you know, and she convinced me I could do it. And I got there and her and Sis Berry, I remember going to have a, a, a session with Sis Berry, who was the voice and accent coach oh, and sort wonderful. of Shakespeare coach at the RSC. And I did this voice. I was doing this. And Sis said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing my Shakespeare, you know. And she said, no, it's your voice. It's your voice. It's in That's your right. voice. And I, well, it's also, like you with the yeah. monologue, I thought, I can't do that. I can't strip that away. I need a barrier between me and it. Yeah. And the more but, I stripped away, the, the more purer it was. But also we do suffer from our conditioning. We do suffer from the fact that we are not worthy, you know, that we do feel that, that all there's this stuff going on. And it's and we, we are as entitled as the next person to own it but we feel we're not. Yeah. And that makes it somewhat difficult. So that's why you go, well, I'll, I'll do this, for, I'll, I'll play it this way. You'll go like that. And you go, and, and a genius, a, a brilliance like Deborah will say, you don't need to do that. There's no need for that. I want Because there's for- the academic and then there's the performance, isn't there? There's, there's right. something about, there's so many books and people, I remember having a session with John Barton and he started talking. I thought, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know how. And then I did, you know, stood up and did it. And you find it in the performance. That's right. It's it's all about the performance. And it, it really is about, that's that's the liberating thing. That's why the theatre is so liberating for us who take part in it. You know, if we take part in it properly, we, we do get truly liberated by it. And it opens up all kinds of things to it. Because oh, yeah. also, you know, we're, we're dealing with people... We're dealing with human beings in, in all kinds of colors and shades and tones. And you have to be open. You have mm-hmm. to be endlessly open. You cannot close off for one second. You've got to be like a babe in the woods sometimes with, the, you know, with all the darkness around you and just embrace it. You know? And it's very easy for, for me anyway, but also to deride our own profession sometimes. That, you know, oh, I just turn up, I just do it. I just, you know, it's a, Sort of actors, sort of thing. But I think in the last two years we've had with the uh, with COVID and people in isolation, we see how important the the arts are to to us as a, as as people, as human. Vital, beings. and I, I think that's the great that's the great plus of COVID. 
You know, this, this streaming thing is fantastic. And television is really coming to its own now because of what you, what you can get access to. I mean, I've been watching some great stuff, really great stuff on television. And I just think, wow, this is, this is so, it's so rich. And, it, and, it, and human beings require it. You know, we, they need the players. They need the people to play for them. They need the people to, to present for them. And, it, and it's no more than now. And, that, and it's been wonderful, this last period. Wonderful. Well, you say in your book about that quote of, you know, you hold up a mirror to the world, really. You're holding, right. You know, this is what you see. And again, Just, that's, it's the bard who says it. You know, yeah. hold up the mirror to nature. Just uh, um, very briefly, there's two things I wanted to ask you about. One is, do you watch yourself when you're working or after you work? Do you watch the monitor? Do you watch playback? No, no, I hate all that. Right. I and can't do you watch? That. Do you watch the finished product? Sometimes, right. not always. Okay. My thing is about the doing rather than the watching. Okay, yeah. I'm more interested in the doing of it than the watching. You know, and a lot of people said, oh, well, surely by the, you learn from the watching. And I said, no. You don't always learn from the watching because the watching, something else comes in play. You're in play and you're going, oh, I could have been, yes. Oh, yeah, why was that? You know, and you, you go all that way, but, but doing it, you really do, you know, in the theater, you do it, you don't watch, you do. And there's, there's no difference. Uh, I always I think that thing of I, I do it, I put in my work, I do everything I want to do and stuff. How it lands and how it's received is sort of none of my business. Really. None of your, exactly. It is none of your business. I mean, you have to do. It. I mean, it's and it takes a long time. You know, you, 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 you know. I still love the work. I still value it. Some, you know, it's 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 more than life to me, and I value it because I'm still learning. I'm still learning, and that's the one thing about our job is that we are constantly in a state of learning. When we've never, we're always on the journey. We've never quite arrived. Right. And the other one I wanted to ask you about, which is sort of connected, is about reviews. And when you, obviously, maybe you don't read reviews anymore, but in the past when reviews, how, how do they affect you? Particularly in the theatre, if you have a review and you still got to do it for the next well, two I, I, months. I, I, my rule was always read the good ones, never the bad ones. <laughs> Whoa, that's brilliant. You know, we all love praise, and so seek the praise and just don't ignore yeah. the bad ones. And if they're all bad, you don't read any of them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I've had, I've had contentious notices. I've had, you know, I've been accused of this, accused of that. I've been told this. And, I, and after a while, it's only their opinion, you know, I mean, sometimes they're right because you can you're, you can be in a piece of shit, you know. Yeah. And I, but even I sometimes when like, they're good reviews and they say, "I love this bit where he did that," and you think every night from then on, you think I've got, I've got to this. This is that moment. Well, my it? my great my great one of that my great one of that was when I played Moby Dick. I played oh, Captain yeah. Ahab yeah. At the, at the, for the last production of Michael Elliott before he passed away. Sadly, he was brilliant again. One of the great directors, Michael. Great. And we did this huge thing, and it was four hours, and I had my leg. I, I took over from Pat McGowan because yeah. McGowan was supposed to do it, and he didn't. He bowed out. He was 56, and he said, I can't, I can't have my leg strapped up my back for five, four hours a night. and just impossible. And, of course, I was 20 years younger. Than I said, oh, well, you know, and Michael came and said, McGowan's walked out. Can you come up? And I said, sure. So I went up. And I did it, but it was it was so hard. It was so physically, it was so exhausting. And and on the first night, the press night, I had to I had to climb up onto the whatnot and do the nailing of this doubloon onto the, the mast. 
and I'm climbing up. And as I climbed up, I got up. My peg leg fell off. <laughs> and my peg leg fell off. And I'm standing there with my, and my, on my one leg. And my peg leg is down. And the guys, the, the dear cast members are trying to screw the bloody thing back in. And they're trying to get it in. And I go, leave it, boys. Leave it. Leave it. <laughs> and I, I took myself off the stage where I kind of went down these, climbed down, and then I had to hobble off and then climb up these steps, putting my knee on one step as I, at a time, <laughs> to get off. It went forever. There was a notice the following day by Irving Wardle in the Times who said this incredible vulnerability, this incredible moment of vulnerability when, when his peg leg came detached. <laughs> the crew had to help him and he didn't want any help. And of course you go, it's all bollocks. Keep it in, lads, keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, it's so wonderful to talk to you. Uh, and, um, you know, it's such a pleasure to read your book as well. I, th you know, anybody listens to the podcast who, you know, I would strongly recommend it. It's fantastic. Great stories. Only a few of which we've touched on today. Um, more strength to you. And uh, I hope that we, you know, hope we meet in person soon as well. Thank you. Really nice to talk to you, David. Take care. Thanks, mate. Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.